0: may be seated. We continue our series on the book of Exodus. We're going to be reading again a lengthy passage today, Exodus chapter 13 starting with verse 17. We're going to read uh, through the end of chapter 13 and then pause a little bit um, and then as in the in the middle of the sermon we'll pick up with uh, the rest of the passage, rest of chapter 14. We find ourselves here that Israelites uh, have been told by Pharaoh to leave, they've left, um, and so now you hear the rest of the story, beginning with chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Father, we thank you for this, uh, your word. We thank you for your work in the nation of Israel, your people, and we thank you, Father, for working salvation and redemption in our lives as well. We pray that we would have a better understanding, a better experience uh, through your word today by your Holy Spirit, and that we might give you glory through that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I prayed that we would give God glory. What is, what is glory? We see that that's really what this passage is about. We're going to get to this in chapter 14, where uh, God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh, chapter 14, verse 4, chapter 14, verse 17. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen, chapter 14, verse 18, uh, when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh. And so God says that he's going to get glory through the defeat of Pharaoh. Well, what is God's glory? I mean, it's a churchy word. We talk about God's glory in church. I've said it several times uh, during the worship service today. And if I asked five or six of you what God's glory was and what glory means, I'd probably get five or six different answers because we don't generally use that terminology in our everyday language. But I spent a little time uh, this week as I was thinking of this passage, I said I'm going to do a study on the usage of the term Glory, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, to try to find out exactly how it was used in the Old Testament. You know, the, if, you're, if you grew up in the Presbyterian church, and maybe if you didn't, you know the, the shorter catechism. Uh, the shorter catechism question one uh, what is man's chief end? What is man's chief purpose? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So if we're going to understand how to do that, let's understand what the word glorify means. So first of all, um, let's look at the verb, to glorify. Um, And you might be surprised, uh, parents and particularly children, you might be surprised that the word that we uh, use for glorify is actually the word in in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that says, honor your father and mother. You might not have thought of the fact that you are supposed to glorify uh, your father and mother, honor your father and mother. In fact, uh, quite often the, the word that we use for glorify is translated honor in the Bible. And so we're supposed to, we find praise and glorify God with our lips, with our voices, with our song, what we say. Psalm chapter 22, verse 23 you who fear the Lord, praise him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Psalm fifty twenty three. The one who offers thanksgiving as sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And another example, Psalm 86, 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. So there's speech, there's language, there's singing that glorifies God, that honors God, and, of course, there's speech that doesn't do that. We might look at the contrast of that. If we would contrast a glorifying speech, what would it be? The Washington Post, in January of 2017, ran a story with the headline that says, Donald Trump will probably be the most ridiculed president ever. And the reason why they said that was somebody had actually done uh, a survey to see um, how many times various presidents had been ridiculed in late night television. And even at that point, Donald Trump was well on his way to to achieving the record. Now, Donald Trump himself is not uh, opposed uh, to ridiculing others. Um, in the campaign, you remember he called Ted Cruz, Lion Ted. Um, and so we know that with our lips, we can do the opposite of glorifying and honoring people. Uh, to use the slang, we can diss people, we can throw shade um, instead of glorifying. The, the noun for glorify in Habakkuk 2 uh, says, in fact, the opposite of glorifying is shame. You have Your fill of shame instead of glory, and utter shame will come upon you, upon your glory. And so, do you honor God with your speech? Uh, Do you glorify Him? Do you praise Him? Do you boast about God? But we find in the Bible that we not only honor and glorify God with our speech, but in our heart, and the outworking of that heart will evidence itself in obedience. Where we honor God. In fact, you may have grown up uh, living in the South, uh, saying, Yes, ma'am, yes, sir, to your parents, and with your lips you may honor them, and yet that doesn't mean that you are going to obey them and honor them with your action. We find that is the case, that we are to honor him with not only our speech but our action. Isaiah twenty nine, thirteen because this people draw near with their mouth and honor glorify me with their lips while their heart their hearts are far from me. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 9 says honor or glorify the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So we find that giving is one of the ways that we honor and glorify the Lord in a practical outworking of what's in our hearts. Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him or glorifies the Lord. Habakkuk 1.8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. There's a priority that the people of Israel at this time did not have in building the house, the temple of God. God said, Glorify me in this way, in these tangible ways. When we look at the use of the term for glorify as a noun in the Bible, we get an idea of what it's like to experience the glory of God. Exodus 24, 17 says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud. The cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then Ezekiel 10.4. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of God. So there's this awesome brightness, uh, heaviness Cloud, fire uh, that exists when God shows up in his glory. There's a famous statement from John Piper God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. We're going to paraphrase that today. God is most glorified when he saves his people, specifically by defeating their enemies. And so, again, Exodus chapter 14, 17. And I will, get, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the way that God got glory over them was he did it. He did it. He accomplished it all by himself with no help from his people. Now in about, what, six months, football season starts again and you'll have uh, the occurrence every Saturday where the, the player, the receiver runs and dives into the end zone and he catches the football for a touchdown and spikes the football, at least in professional football, and the uh, crowd goes crazy and they uh, scream and shout and they glorify the receiver. But really, the receiver just was part of it, right? Obviously, the quarterback had to throw well, and the offensive line had to protect the quarterback, and probably that receiver got a good block down the field. And so it was a team effort. But when it came to God and the Israelites and their being saved from the Egyptians, God and God alone did it. So now I'm picking up with 1317. I've probably been... giving conniption fits to the people in the back there. But we're, we're picking back up here in chapter, uh, I'm sorry, it's going to be chapter uh, 14, verse 2, Donald. Uh, but first, just a couple of uh, quotes from chapter 13. 13:17. 17, um, the people were unable to sa- save themselves, and we see that in verse 17. Uh, he didn't lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, uh, this was the shortest route. This was the trade route. You know, lots of uh, particulars in this passage. We don't know the thousands of years have passed. We don't know where some of these cities are that are mentioned in here. But, but we know that this trade route, the, the route of the Philistines, was uh, a route from Egypt to uh, the land of Canaan. Um, and God didn't take them that way because this was a land that had lots of Egyptian uh, military outposts. And so God knew that as the uh, children of Israel got going down that route, that they would turn and run the other direction. Uh, they were no mighty warriors. They were not ready and equipped uh, for battle. But God was with them in his glory. Chapter 13, verse 22, the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So God himself made, it, made his presence known among them. So now we are... To chapter 14, verse 2. We find what God did in his plan was he put the uh, children of Israel in a completely indefensible position militarily, and he put them in a position on purpose where they had no escape route. They could not retreat. Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Hai-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, and in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea, in other words, Israel, instead of going the short route to Canaan, we want you to go right up against the Red Sea where there's no escape. So the plan of God. The plan of God, it, it, uh, it entails panache. It entails twists. It entails turns. It entails flair, uh, miraculous feats, surprise, to to be victorious over the enemy, and to achieve God's glory. Exodus fourteen three. For God will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. This word for wandering uh, is often used of animals, flocks, kind of wandering aimlessly. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and will get. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Egypt was perhaps, uh, arguably, the strongest military power of the day. The 600 cho- choice chariots, these were the, the best of the best. Um, and so for Israel, it would be like, um, you know, the U.S. has the Abrams tank uh, coming against the enemy with uh, 22 pistols. Um, it, it's not going to happen, right? Uh, you're not going to win. Picking up with verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army overtook them and encamped encamp- at the sea by Pi Hi- Hi- Hirath and in front of Bel-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel (laughs) cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness the Israelites actually they saw their predicament accurately from a purely human perspective. Uh, they were pursued by the greatest military uh, might on the planet. They were boxed in, they had no hope, except for the fact that God was with them. He was with them, with the cloud and the fire except for the fact they had seen God do his mighty acts, his miracles of deliverance in the land of Egypt, but they could do nothing to save themselves. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Now, our English translation sort of makes that particular verse something that you might put up on your mirror every morning and look at it as sort of an encouraging statement, but uh, the Hebrew commentators say that this is really not the tone of this passage. It would be something more like, shut up and stand firm. Okay? This, is not, this is not a nice, cuddly statement. And he goes on to say, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. All they have to do is be quiet and watch and see what the Lord is going to do. Picking up with verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw that the Egyptians, the Egyptians dead on the seashore. God is most glorified when he saves his people by defeating his and our enemies. And so the people responded in Exodus chapter 14, 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, people try to diminish the glory of God in this passage all the time. They try to say that this was really uh, purely a natural event that took place. that um, really was near, not nearly as spectacular as we have here um, when I was a, a, a campus minister at Florida State, there was a particular professor that taught in our intro to religion class. Uh, I don't know if you guys still have intro to religion. It was a required class, and I can't imagine that this guy's still there. I mean, this was 30 years ago. But uh, but he would teach this class, and basically through the course of this class, he would um, uh, talk about, well, there, I think there's this con- uh, conflict and that um, uh, contradiction here in the Bible, and uh, essentially trying to undermine uh, the faith of students in the Bible. And at the end of the course, he would reveal, I am a Presbyterian minister. Not in our denomination, by the way, but um, uh, it undermined uh, many students' faith. And I would probably get once a month a student coming into my office saying, Uh, my professor told me that this is a contradiction in the Bible. I called it the contradiction of the month. I would sit down and I'd say, well, let's take a look at that. And um, at the end of it, they'd go, oh, okay, I get it. My professor is biased. Um, Now, uh, so oftentimes people will say related to this passage, if that's the case. There's an account uh, given by Donald Bridge. He tells the story of a, a worship service in a congregation not like ours in some congregations they speak back at the pastor right uh, we had a we had a guy in our church uh, last summer you might remember he uh, was working at Tyndall Air Force Base and he would come to church and uh, he would speak uh, uh, God love him it was wonderful you know he'd say um, amen and he he'd talk to me as I was preaching and he didn't care if nobody else was doing it sometimes whole churches are like that right and giving their preacher feedback and This was that particular kind of church. And this was a a liberal pastor. What I mean by that is uh, theologically, he didn't believe um, that the Bible was accurate and true. And so he preached on this particular passage about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea when someone in the congregation shouted out, "'Praise the Lord for the mighty miracle.'" And so this frowning uh, preacher said in a condescending tone, "'It was not a miracle.'" They were doubtless in marshland. The tide was ebbing, and the children of Israel picked their way across six inches of water. From the congregation came the response, Praise the Lord, drowning all those Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. (laughs) That is the point, isn't it? It was a mighty miracle. You know, this is conveying a mighty miracle, a pillar of fire. A cloud accompanying them, moving from one side to the other. The waters parting on either side, heaping up to their right and to their left, right? It was a miracle. God did it. And because he did it, God got the glory. God is most glorified when, here's the second phrase, when, he, when we are most surprised, God is most glorified when we are most surprised. You know, he could have made it easier for Israel. He he didn't have to do it that way. Um, God's plan was a surprise to them, to say the least. And we go through similar circumstances where we go through surprises. I mean, a year ago, who would have thought we would have been dealing with the aftermath of a disaster like we are dealing with? Um, As I've mentioned before, Tuesday morning before the hurricane hit, talking to the prayer group, uh, talking to the assembled group there. I said, some of you live in uh, flood zones. Are you not going to uh, evacuate? And they said, oh, well, we went through Hurricane Opal, and we were fine. The hurricane hit. Surprise! It was not a Hurricane Opal. And we have all kinds of things like that in our lives where we deal with these events that happen, surprises, some of them large, some of them small, uh, that we have a hard time handling, that we can't handle. And God can get the glory in dealing with the surprises in our lives. I think it could be something very small. Yesterday, uh, we got in the mail uh, a bill, uh, and that bill was a late charge, and it had been the second late charge. It was like five bucks. And it, it almost sent me over the edge, right? You know, just this, this one surprise. Uh, and then I said, uh, preacher, you better preach to yourself. It's not that big a deal. And God, God can get glory in my late charge, right? i do not sure how, but he can. And so we deal with those things that are uncomfortable surprises. Uh, do you trust God? You know, God promised the Israelites that he was going to take them home to the land of Canaan. And he did that, uh, but he didn't promise that it was going to be easy. He promises to never leave us and never forsake us. He promises to hear us like a father, here's his child. He promises to work through our trials and to sanctify us. And he promises to bring you home all the way to the promised land. And so the surprises in your life are for God's glory. So the question is, will you both call out to him in your need and give him honor and glory in the midst of your surprise, even before he makes it clear what the outcome is going to be? We walk by faith and not by sight. And so we have no idea what God is going to do and how he's going to work through these uncomfortable surprises to save us. How will he receive glory through it? What stories will we tell? You know, we've already told one story. Uh, Bill Doddrell praying. Where's Bill? He's in here somewhere. Uh, Bill Dodgerel praying. You know, we had. I uh, uh, said, so Bill said, "Okay, I'll take the the pews in the church. Okay, I'll I'll make sure we got a place for the pews." Uh, for those of you who weren't here then, we had many days where there was no rain after the hurricane and. We had no roof on our sanctuary. We had pews in the sanctuary, and the rains were coming. And we were looking to try to save them with uh, with a, a warehouse space. We tried to find warehouse space. We couldn't find warehouse space. You know, how are we going to move these pews? They're heavy. Um, what, what's it going to work? So, literally, in a few hours, God worked it all out. You know, Bill was praying during the night. The rains were coming. In one day, uh, we we got the we got the warehouse. We got the truck in 30 Navy Divers. Um, 30 Navy Divers. Amazing. God provided. We had no expectation whatsoever that he would do that in that way. And So what kind of stories are we going to be able to tell of the ways in which God is dealing with our unexpected difficulties, saving us uh, in a way that he will get glory? You know, on one level, it was a very difficult thing that the... Israelites were going through. On another hand, it was it was just easy. Uh, Listen to the words again. And Moses said to the people, Fear not and stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant. Moses. They didn't do anything. They just saw what the Lord did. No sweat. It was easy. Well, God is most glorified when he saves his people by defeating his and our enemies by his awesome plan through the incarnate son of God, Jesus Christ. Nobody really saw that one coming. Nobody expected it. They were surprised. Here's how one commentator said of this event here in Exodus with the Israelites being saved. Perhaps we can say that it's not so much that we apply the Exodus to our lives, but that the Exodus is applied, excuse me, is applied to us, right? I mean, there's faith uh, principles that we can learn from this, but the, the main takeaway is that Exodus is applied to us by God. God did it. God receives glory through it. Ezekiel 39.29, I will set my glory among the nations and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed in my hand that I have laid on them. And so Jesus Christ came to win ultimate victory. The eternal Son of God existed for all eternity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Son of God came, took on a human body and a human soul. Right? I mean, we're in church, so we hear that. But just try to step back and think of how that sounds. God, the creator, creator created billions and billions of planets, came, took on a human body and a human soul for the purpose of defeating his and our enemies. Our enemy uh, was death, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26 and comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he destroyed the enemy of death uh, by his uh, life and his death and his resurrection from the dead, uh, that we've experienced that resurrection life in him. But he also had to defeat uh, and provide salvation from our problem that created death in our lives. And that is sin. The wages of sin is death. And the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to one, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 4.25 says that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justifications. Jesus Christ came to free us from the tyranny of sin that had us in slavery and in bondage. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so Jesus Christ came to be that substitute, that sacrifice who did what we could not do and take the penalty for our disobedience. And he came to defeat the enemy, the one that stood stood opposed to us from the very beginning, Satan, uh, the one who uh, would entice us to sin, who did entice Adam and Eve to sin, and has been working uh, for our harm ever since. We read in Genesis of that encounter, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He deceived Adam and Eve. He deceived the woman and we were plunged into sin. We've been sinning ever since. Hebrews chapter 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. Amazing. He took on flesh in order to destroy the works of the devil. Who saw that one coming? Well, the people in the time of Christ didn't see that coming, right? They were amazed. They were surprised. In Acts chapter 13, 27, it says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets... 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And yet here we have God and his amazing plan. It took twists and turns, and it, it was amazing and unpredictable and surprising. Now, the children of Israel could have been saved perhaps in other ways, but this was the only way... That this salvation could have been effected for us. The only way that we could have been saved from our sins, the only way that we could receive life, resurrection life, was by this amazing, spectacular, surprising plan of God. That God would take on flesh and do what we could not do, to live the perfect life we could not and have not lived. And that in faith, we trust in Jesus Christ. We're united to him by faith. in his resurrection life, we experience now. And someday, we'll experience imperfection. So the question is, do you live for his glory? In this crazy, unpredictable world, do you live for his glory? Do you praise him even in the midst of your unpredictable trials, understanding that he can and will receive glory in it? And secondly, do you just understand that you exist for God's glory and that salvation that he has brought to you, he has done it for your good, but he has also done it for his glory. Because the exodus and the mighty victory that God won militarily, as amazing as that was, was nothing more than a pointer to the victory that he won, the eternal Son of God, coming here for you and for me, affecting our salvation through Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul, at the end of 11 chapters in the book of Romans, where he's laying out this wonderful, intricate, spectacular plan of God, he says at the end of it, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him a gift to him that he might be paid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. You exist for God's glory. Let's pray.